0: Hello, and welcome to Senior Rx Radio. I'm Dr. Jaron Stout.
1: And I am Dr. Joanne Payo, and we are your hosts of Senior Rx Radio.
0: Today's guest is Catherine Eben. She is a best-selling author of Bottle of Lies. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me.
1: So, Catherine, both Jaron and I were very intrigued by your book, Bottle of Lies. For those of our audience that are not familiar with your book, can you give a brief summary? Sure. So the book is
2: an investigation into widespread fraud in the overseas manufacturing plants that make the low-cost medicine that Americans rely on. It follows a group of real-life characters as they uncover fraud in these plants. One is an Indian whistleblower named Dinesh Thakur. Another is an FDA investigator named Peter Baker. And the book is a true account of what they uncovered, but also what I uncovered in the course of a 10-year investigation.
0: So, Catherine, out of curiosity, did you spend the majority of 10 years in India? How much was it, were you there?
2: Well, you know, I had long reporting trips that I took to track down information. So, reporting trips in India, China, in Europe, Mexico, throughout the United States, Africa, and really all to try to document first what was going on in these manufacturing plants, what the impact on patients was, and how regulators were trying or failing to stop compromised drugs from reaching patients. And it really, you know, in order to look at you know, what is happening to our drugs in an era of globalization? It really took global reporting to try to capture that story.
0: Okay. So when I first saw the title of the book, I was very skeptical. But the thing I loved about the book is it was all facts. It was very straightforward. It, it spelled out everything. And one of the guys that you quoted in there, Joe Graydon, you mentioned that even he said if his perspective for a long time was if you want to buy a brand name drug when there's a generic available, you must be out of your mind. And that is honestly the, the frame of mind of just about every pharmacist. And this book really made me rethink that. And it portrayed that through facts, which is very great. One of the things that I love is for me as a pharmacist, I was able to to get a lot of this book and a lot of it I already knew, but you took a lot of time To give a lot of background, so that people who don't understand the world of pharmacy could still get a lot out of this book. So what inspired you to write this book?
2: You know, I didn't set out to write a book, and God knows I didn't set out to spend 10 years reporting this. (laughs) But what what happened was, in 2008, I got a phone call from Joe Greyton, who is a host of an NPR radio program called the People's Pharmacy. And he knew my work. I'd been on his program before. He called to say that he was getting flooded with complaints from patients who had been switched to generic drugs and who were suffering unwelcome side effects or even relapses. And he had taken these complaints to the FDA. Officials there had told him, oh, It's probably psychosomatic. It's in the patient's heads because, you know, once their pills look different, they have a psychological reaction. And Joe really did not buy that at all. And he posed this question to me, what is wrong with the drugs? And he recommended that, you know, somebody who with investigative skills should look into this. So I began reporting on this and it was really bit by bit that I became skeptical about the FDA's claims. You know, the FDA had made claims that, uh, that we all believe, which is generics are interchangeable with the brand. Generics are interchangeable with one another. There's no difference. And, you know, they have really led us all to believe that generic drugs are a bargain with no downside, no hidden costs. But the more I reported, the more it seemed clear that not only are they not interchangeable, and that patients really were having certain reactions, but you know what I really began reporting on was a corporate corruption story. That in many of these plants overseas, companies are fabricating data, and they're representing the drugs as having equivalent quality when in fact they do not. And that is really, you know, what the book, what I ended up uncovering.
1: And that was very shocking for me as a pharmacist, because that's something I tell patients, you know, why pay for the brand name of the drug when you can get the generic? But with recent, like in the past year or two, you've seen a lot of recent recalls from the FDA about certain medications from different manufacturers. Recently, I believe it's Zantac was recalled. Mm-hmm. I'm not very clear on it if it was the brand or the generic, but one of the manufacturers in terms of there was a carcinogen mm-hmm. and then you see some things with Blossardin. So mm-hmm. what should consumers be aware? Like what should consumers look for when they're getting their medications at the pharmacy? So,
2: you know, Since the book has come out, I have gotten so many questions from patients. How can they know where their drugs are made? What can they do to make sure their drugs are safe? And while there's no perfect answer to that, the first thing I think everybody needs to do is be aware of who the manufacturer of their drug is. So if you're a patient that gets a maintenance drug, And you feel that drug is working for you and you don't have side effects and your symptoms are in control. Your, you know, whatever ailment you have is under control. Then you want to take note of who the manufacturer is because you want to continue on that drug, right? The problem now is that we're often changed from month to month, depending on what is on the pharmacy shelves. And patients rarely even look at the name of the manufacturer. But that's really, that's sort of the first and most important piece of information to have. Also, because if the drug doesn't seem to be working or has side effects, you're going to want to change manufacturers, right? So if you're not paying attention to that, you don't know what to either change or keep the same. That's really number one. Number two, I think it's important for consumers to have a little information about the track record of that manufacturer. You know, there are manufacturers now that have been caught by the FDA faking data who have problems with sterility in their plants, who have warning letters or import alerts or sanctions of various sorts. And I think it's important for consumers to know that. You know, I wish that there were a kind of Yelp ranking or review system for these drugs. But, you know, part of the problem is that You know, what you had talked about with the Valsartan and the carcinogens, part of the problem is that the FDA is not actually testing these drugs. And that is a common misconception. I think most patients uh, believe that the FDA actually is doing systematic testing of drugs, and they're not. You know, what they're doing is reviewing company data. And as my investigation reveals, oftentimes that data is fake. So, you know, had the FDA been doing systematic testing, it might have been able to catch carcinogens in blood pressure medication that has now been recalled for millions of American patients. So, you know, it's very it's very dismaying. Because I've gotten this question from so many patients, I've actually put a guide on my website, which is katherineeban.com, it's a guide to investigating your own drugs, what to look for, what research to do, how to go about changing the manufacturer if you want to do that. So, you know, I've tr- I tried, even though the information, uh, even though there's no sort of perfect system, I tried to cobble together the best tools I could think of to give to
0: patients. Okay. so. <clears throat> There were several manufacturers that you covered in the book. I think mm-hmm. there was CIPLA, which did a lot of work to get AIDS drugs in Africa. Mm-hmm. There was uh, Dr. Reddy. There was a couple of others. And the, of course, the primary story is about Ranbaxy. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I'm curious of is, do you think that the success that Ranbaxy was having... One of the things you touched on is they had a goal. You know, they wanted mm-hmm. to reach global sales of $4 billion by 2015. And obviously, I think that, that goal in mind it contributed to them faking data so they didn't mm-hmm. have to backtrack and they could reach their goal. Mm-hmm. But do you think that the success of Ranbaxy contributed to the corruption as a whole in that area that others had to keep up so they had to start faking their own data? Do you think that that, that snowballed or do you think it was already in place?
2: You know, that's an interesting question. I don't think it was specifically the success of Rambaxi, but there is an incentive in the original legislation that launched the generic drug industry. That legislation is called Hatch Waxman. And the incentive in that legislation is called First to File. And basically, what it said is any generic drug company that is first to put down its application with the FDA to make a specific drug, if that company gets approval, then it has six months of exclusivity on the market before other generic competitors come in. And so there was this fundamental race going on among generic drug companies who could get those valuable first file applications approved. And that I think was a big driver of some of the fraud, which is that companies raced to get their applications in even before they knew really how to make the drug. So part of the calculation was if they can get their application in and get approval and fake the data to do it, well, once they get approval, they'll have a little time to go back into the laboratory and actually figure out how to make the drug. But the consequence of this was all very serious which is that they ended up launching onto the market drugs that they didn't really know how to make yet, which essentially is a system in which we are all guinea pigs because we were essentially getting drugs that had not been fully tested before they were launched on the market. And of course, all of this was hidden from the FDA.
0: Right. I think Sotret is one of the things Mm -hmm. that was a very good example of that. And just how they would just flat out lie and almost accuse the FDA of having inaccurate data rather than admitting wrongdoing. It's really, really shocking to just see and and Mm -hmm. read and hear about just just how far they would go. Because I I say this all the time, like if people who are scam artists, they call to, to trick you to say they're a government agency, they have to pay them. Mm-hmm. they would put that same amount of effort into doing something honest so they could be successful and in that same regard these people had opportunities to maybe change their culture change the education of their employees but instead they doubled down mm-hmm. and as a result i is ranbhat even in business anymore or
2: well it really isn't i mean it's been it was sold at a sort of fire sale price to another big generic company in india so It doesn't really exist anymore, you know, and there have been a lot of sanctions put on a lot of plants in India, but, you know, nonetheless, that country is supplying about 40% of generic drugs to this country. So we really are reliant on them. And part of the problem that I've discovered is that the FDA is really sort of in conflict with itself. Because on the one hand, it is required to safeguard public health. On the other hand, it has this political mission, which is to demonstrate for Congress how many generics they are approving. And so they're very intent on rapid approval of drugs, right? And if they uncover wrongdoing and they sanction plants, then that interrupts the flow of low cost medicine. So I think in a lot of instances, the FDA has pulled its punches, has not come down hard on these plants in order to continue the flow of this medicine.
0: Okay, so I have a few ideas of what contributed, but here's some of what contributed to the problem. So Mm -hmm. here's four items that I I kind of found that I think are touched on in the book. Maybe Mm -hmm. just tell me what you think are the biggest, what is the biggest contributor. So first of all, FDA is stretched too thin. Obviously, mm-hmm. trying to go global. Um, yeah. I think one of the things you mentioned is they, they jumped literally almost overnight from you know a small amount to a massive amount, and they just couldn't keep up with regulating all those overseas facilities. Also, global politics and diplomacy because it also touches on how the FDA wanted to have their overseas audits to go very well, so they could have good diplomacy and good overseas relationships with these different countries. Right, outdated equivalency data. Because obviously, you know, when you're reading the book, it kind of touches on how some of these generics actually did hit the criteria, but only on one strength. So they just assumed that all mm-hmm. the strengths were also equivalent. So, mm-hmm. and and also maybe inability to prosecute overseas because mm-hmm. a lot of these mm-hmm. people are just doing things because they know that, hey, that the U.S. governments can't throw me in jail while I'm out here. Right. So what do you think are the are the biggest contributors?
2: You know, I think, all of those things are contributors, but I think <laughs> there is this essential problem, which is the FDA is saying we're going to inspire a culture of compliance in these overseas plants and we're going to teach them and demonstrate for them, you know, the good manufacturing practices and they'll comply with them because they want to be in our market. Uh, but at the same time, they regulate it on an honor system. You know, they, in the US, they announce their inspections, in a, they, they show up unannounced and do surprise inspections. But what I discovered is that overseas, partly for diplomatic reasons and logistical reasons, they are announcing their inspections in advance. They're giving these plants two months' notice that they're going to come. And so, these plants end up staging their inspections. They fabricate data, they clean up bird infestations, they get rid of lizards and snakes and monkeys, and they bring in teams of people to invent data. You know, so in a way, the FDA is permitting this to happen. You know, these. a lot of people have said to me, those inspections, those pre-announced inspections are all but worthless. So really, the FDA is inspecting on an honor system
0: you touched on this earlier. I think that's a common misconception. A lot of people think that that is what's happening, but in fact, it is not. Mm -hmm. So just one more quick question. I have a theory because reading your book really got my mind going about what pharmacists can do. Mm -hmm. And so I have a theory here. Now, obviously a lot of things would have to, to change and a lot of pharmacies would have to coordinate this really would take a lot, but here's kind of one of my ideas because I always am looking for ideas and opportunities for pharmacists to improve mm-hmm. our medication system. So what if a patient goes to a pharmacy, the pharmacy starts doing in-house lab tests, for instance, mm-hmm. the Oristan, the pravastatins of the world. What if we start doing in-house testing that says, okay, well, I switched the, this uh, manufacturer this month and the cholesterol reacted in this manner. So now from now on, when I order this drug, I'm going to tell my supplier, do not send me this manufacturer mm-hmm. because several poor results with several patients, and then start reporting this information to insurance companies. Mm-hmm. And then insurance companies can be more selective on their formulary regarding manufacturers as just opposed to just one drug. And that way we can start uh, slowing down the sales of those generic manufacturers that are less effective and fraudulent.
2: What that, is, that is just a great idea. I mean, I think that that is the single most effective thing that pharmacies could do. I mean, if you imagine, you know, the whole our whole drug supply is built on this premise that if the FDA has approved it, it's totally safe to take. And, right, if they say it's bioequivalent, then it is. But imagine if, say, CVS, announced that it was going to test every batch it dispensed. That would be a game changer. Right? I mean you would you would you would incentivize quality and you would weed out substandard drugs. I personally and and frankly I think that a pharmacy chain that announced that it was going to do that would be a huge commercial success. I think that consumers want that. I mean You know, one thing that I've been struck by, I mean, in the run-up to this book, I thought to myself, oh, you know, I'm really, this book is in many ways full of bad news, right? I'm saying that these drugs, which are the solution for millions of people, right? Because few of us can afford brand name drugs. I'm saying that these low-cost drugs are really the problem. But what's been interesting to me is that even though that is, it is, not a positive message. Consumers are really grateful. And consumers really want this information. They want to know. And so I think if pharmacies took the step of really vigilantly testing drugs they dispense, it would be a huge win. I think it would be a huge commercial win for them and obviously a huge win for patients.
0: Yeah. I mean, aside from buying expensive machinery to, to test the, the actual drugs, this is the best way to go about it.
1: Absolutely. I'm with you. That was a very great idea, Jaron. But in the meantime, what can we do in the short term as for pharmacy managers that are buying medication? Do you think that we should try to come up with a with an initiative, you know, let's stop changing the manufacturer based on cost. Choosing one manufacturer and staying with it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, that is really a central problem is that people are, formulary managers are making decisions based on the lowest cost and they really need to ask themselves, what is the incentive for quality here? You know, if you take the example from the book of the Cleveland Clinic, the um the hospital pharmacists there were essentially running like a mini FDA you know they were asking companies for bioequivalence data they were monitoring information about warning letters and import alerts and on the basis of their vigilance they developed a kind of blacklist of drugs they would n- no longer purchase that they didn't feel were safe enough and i think that It's time for formulary managers to really look at quality metrics as opposed to just dollar signs, you know, and what's cheapest.
1: Thank you so much for coming on today's show. It was very informative. Yes, there were a lot of negative points about (laughs) some of our favorite generic drugs, but I know I speak for both Jaren and I when I say that, you know, we as pharmacists, we want to know this information so that we can better assist our patients. So thank you for coming on today's show. And thank you for writing Bottle of Lies.
2: Thank you. It's a real pleasure to talk to both of you.
0: Thanks for joining the show today. And just for all our listeners, I strongly recommend giving this book a read. And also, Chapter 19 was a game changer for me like that. I mean, the whole book was good. But Chapter 19, when you, the solving for X was just phenomenal. in it really opened my eyes that this was a system-wide thing and not just central to Rand So thank you.
2: Thank you.